Hi, I'm Katrina Irwin. And I'm Glennis Navarrete. This is our youth-focused podcast about the climate crisis. Coming to you from ground zero of that crisis, Miami, Florida. Powered by the Clio Institute. And hosted by us. This is House House on on Fire. Fire. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Neshma Jones Report. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) We're here today on House on Fire. And during some pre-interviews right now, we were listening to our guest, and Glennis and I were joking that she's going to come for our job, and this is going to (laughs) be her new show. But... Our guest today is someone that both Glennis and I know very well as a coworker, as a friend, and as an activist, Neshma Jones. It is so amazing to have you here in the studio today. Oh my gosh, what an introduction. I'm so happy to be sitting between you two and like outside of the Clio office and we've shared space in South Florida, all, you know, different times and different energies and different geographies and so this is just another one to add to the collection so I'm like beyond honored to be here with y'all and you guys have been doing such a great job with the podcast and so thanks for inviting me thanks for just gonna make me tear up (laughs) oh my gosh and it is really such an honor to have you on this podcast too and it was so crazy because you know so for those listening, I'm, I'm sure you you get this at this point, but we ask all of our guests to send over a bio about themselves. And Glennis and I have known Neshma for like a year at this point. And when she sent over her bio, I was so blown away. She sent a short version and a long version. And I was so like, professional. We, yeah, we, we have to we have to do the long version because there are things about Neshma. I don't know. And because we made it very clear that Nishma has a made-for-podcast voice, I definitely think she should have a little bit of an autobiographical <laughs> moment and tell you all a little bit about herself. Okay. Well, wow. Pressure. <laughs> so um, understated excellence is like my vibe, right? So bits and pieces unfold themselves eventually in the, you know, the nature of the relationship. And so I'm glad that we have gotten to this point in our journey where I even sending the bio was like oh my gosh these are like my work people like uh, so much pressure I was just like okay you know just send it so um yeah thanks for receiving that so um to start like just currently um I'm a stressed out master's uh, <laughs> student. I'm getting my uh, master's as an extension of my master's in psychology as a licensed clinical mental health counselor. Um, to be very clear, I do not want to be a counselor. I need counseling all the time. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> right. Um, but I just really want to have the credentials to be able to say, um, not just be a mental health advocate, because you can do that without going to school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can do that as somebody who's neurodivergent. You can do that as somebody who is neurotypical in the range in betweens, right? But I want to have the credentials, and I think this might actually be a point to bring up later in the podcast as we talk, uh, you know, unfold the topics, but have the credentials to say I'm an expert in this area. And so, um, again, don't want to do counseling, but, you know, I'm just in my theory classes right now. So maybe that changes later on. But right now, I just want to bring the intersection of mental health to everything that I do, every space that I'm in, um, and just be a loud voice for it. So 
that's what we're doing now and we'll be doing after this podcast submitting some discussion post uh that i should have done yesterday <laughs> okay <laughs> so that's that um what inspired me right um i got my bachelor's degree from the university of central florida go knights and i got my bachelor's in social science education right um why I was in education, we don't need to go back to my freshman year, but just know that there were several major shifts in social science education. I actually did a junior achievement internship, and one of the volunteer things that I had to do was go into a school. I'm like, oh, wow, okay, I'm good at this. So next day I was at the registrar's office, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do education. I was supposed to be poli-sci. Mm-hmm. But, you know, discipline and <laughs> So anyways... Um, we learn and grow. So anyway, social science education, my first um, job career was as a social studies teacher, middle school, um, H.D. Perry, Miramar. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, I taught seventh grade civics. And from there, um, I taught pretty much any social science curriculum you can think of between sixth and eleventh grade. Uh, between Broward County and Houston, Texas, which is where I eventually ended up. And I just noticed that my students had a hard time grasping history. One, history in social studies is like the ugly stepsister of, uh, you know, content in schools, curriculum. Um, But also, like, kids were hungry and kids didn't know what house they were going to and kids weren't safe in their communities. And so that kind of led me into nonprofit I wanted to affect the communities that my students were leaving school, mm-hmm. right? And that led me to New Orleans, and that was my first nonprofit job. I was a education coordinator for this really awesome energy efficiency uh, nonprofit and sustainability nonprofit. Shout out Energy Wise LA, and I oversaw New Orleans Parish. Some like. 50, 60 schools, and I went wow. into the <laughs> 50, I went into the schools and um, like taught them about energy efficiency and gave them light bulbs. And I can tell you so much about light bulbs for no <laughs> reason. So, much about light bulbs. so every single light bulb, like I can tell you about it. Um, faucet aerators, um, low flow, uh, why we should do, you know, and just making those things fun for the students. And give, gave them this resource kit so they took it home and they became the teachers and leaders in their household. They took the kit and they went back to their parents, New Orleans being like a heavy like um, minority uh, population city as well as like you go around New Orleans if you've ever been and like the poverty is astounding. Yeah, And sometimes you go into places in New Orleans, the third war, and you're like, this is our, this is America mm-hmm. still, right? Katrina, not you, Katrina, the, the actual, yeah, the actual <laughs> Katrina, yeah. right? And houses are still dilapidated, grass growing off of the roofs haven't changed, still have the FEMA marks on them. It's like, this is 2020. And what's even crazier, not to interrupt you, Mm-mm. I saw a documentary called Troubled the Water. Mm. It's about this black couple that, was in New Orleans and at the end of the at the end of the documentary I highly recommend the listeners and everyone here watch the documentary it's great they talk about how the his, the touristy part of New Orleans was repaired in 9 months 
Of oh, course. Really? And like you said, parts of New Orleans from 2004, 2005 are still not recovered yet. Of course, because they're going to focus on, all right, what's bringing me money? They can care less about the people. They want the profit. And that's yeah. something that we constantly fight about um, just because people have their priorities all messed up. All messed up. And then people don't even realize when they're going down to Cater Street, like, those are slave quarters. The 300 block is where slave tri- slave ships came from the Caribbean, came um, by way of the triangle trade uh, with enslaved people after those conditions and sold them on that 300 block that is facing the St. Louis Cathedral. And people are going to Cafe Dumont for their beignets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, those, those uh, you know, the, those streets hold blood. Right. And bone. And and <laughs> we know what, you know, Bourbon Street is notorious for. And people go there and don't know those things. Right. So anyways, um, bio is getting long. This is why I was nervous about it when Katie, Katie told <laughs> no, me. But I, was like... <laughs> I think that's beautiful, though, because you get to kind of show people or the listeners that you started off in a completely different route than where you are. Mm-hmm. But it's your passion and it's just honestly your morals, the person that you are developing it, it's it's beautiful. And I don't think that a lot of people that start in their activism uh, in, in, in this field, they kind of think, oh, well, I have all I need all these years of experience. No, you don't. Mm-hmm. You just need to start. You just need start to say, somewhere. Yeah, say yeah, something. Exactly. Well, we do have a lot to cover. Oh, this, gosh, I'm this... so sorry. That was forever. <laughs> no, no, no. It was awesome. Because going into the conversations that we will be getting into, understanding who you are as a person is a big key to that okay gotcha. that's very important yeah because i mean diving into this before we even decided let's let's start an interview with Nishma. we spoke on a very heavy topic mm. and katrina and i decided we're not gonna move forward without addressing this issue mm-hmm. because it really got under our skins and it's it's so true and Nishma brought it to our attention it of happens just everywhere everywhere all month long tokenism and black history month mm-hmm. my gosh like everywhere you just see commercials you see flyers posters bus stops and it's like the city of miami cops they're now having a black history month we didn't ask for that a rap on the (laughs) yeah (laughs) who asked for that like i mean okay whatever but you know in a state where african-american studies you know they're being watered down a lot of things in the state of florida right now are just being pushed by a political agenda a very heavy um let me watch what I say here carefully. Let me kind of say it. I mean, I think that's what, you know, a lot of bullshit is going on. Let oh. me just, <laughs> All right. you know, and it's not just with that. I mean, we live in a town in, in a country where racism is still very, very heavy. Mm-hmm. We can't just ignore it. And a part of the problem is also thinking that, oh, African-Americans, the black community, we just you, you guys just get one month. No. What is that? So I wanted to, you know, just bring it back that we can do more outside. Like this matters all year long for the rest of our lives in order to move forward. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I want to kind of get your opinion on it because you stated it. And when you when you brought it to my attention, I was like, sometimes I get lost in the South Florida bubble. Yeah. The melting pot of like, mm-hmm. I see you, I see, you know, my other friends, I see the, the Hispanic community. You know, I don't really get to understand that outside of this bubble, 
shit is yeah. <laughs> she's real bad. Yeah, yeah. really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And I want to hear your perspective being that you are a woman that has lived out of Florida, that has experienced that, and just what it means to you, everything that this month stands for, the movement. Jeez, man, um, 30 minutes we have? Um, <laughs> so another part of the autobiography, which um, so I do two things at my church. So um, I am the director of communications uh, for the First Baptist Church of Sunrise, Florida. It's the oldest um, church in Sunrise. And I also am the chair for the historical and cultural community. And our biggest event uh, throughout the year is Black History Month, where we have like programming all month and um, it's happening now right and I remember being a little girl at a church um, and going through it and we're predominantly Caribbean church right so in South Florida we have that distinction right so we have the black diaspora but in South Florida we have African-American we have Jamaican we have Haitian big up because there's no conversation about Black history without Haiti. There is no Latina dad without Haiti. Uh, we have um, so just so many, and like all of my <laughs> island native is gonna get mad at me because I'm not mentioning Bahamas and uh, <laughs> VI and Big Up and you know it's I'm hard, gonna go right? to the when you get into it, you're like, I'm missing what's something. Right? Yeah, Trinidad and Tobago and all of these <laughs> places, right? But I, who else am I missing? So they hear this and they don't get. You guys have Nishma's Instagram if you want to DM her. Turks and (laughs) Caicos, right? So anyway, so so like, black means a lot, a lot here in South Florida. It's different, right? And so me being able to direct Black History Month programming um, is just one external way that I'm able to like pour my heart into. Um, it's a new type of lesson plan for me, and it's really fun because like all the people at that church are like, oh gosh, I hope they don't listen. They're like um, elevated in age, mm. Mm. <laughs> and they're Caribbean, right? So even if we're talking about like mainstay African American Black history, Black American history, that's still new to them because they're generations removed from me, right? And their country is moved for me like i'm i'm like the first generation removed from jamaica but i wasn't even born in the u.s i was born in spain so like you know so it's it's this you know awesome dynamic but like it's a constant learning and then you have um you know our governor governor desanitizer and his Mm -hmm. empathizers um who are you know taking away our access intentionally right (laughs) and um i want to take the time to say like there used to be this saying especially like jim crow like uh put uh if you want to hide something from a put it in a book right Mm -hmm. but we also have to realize that people who used to say that were still the ones who created legislation that made it illegal for black people to read Mm mm-hmm Right. So it's this like nasty system. Right. But then if you can't read, you're not literate. If you're not literate, school uh, schools are and schools are segregated. Right. If you have a school at all. Right. And then that bars your access to universities. But wait, there's no universities for black people to go to. Right. So it's, it's just this intentional, nasty, vicious cycle. Right. And um, so our governor says, well, if 
we can't hide things in books anymore because black women are getting degrees at the highest rate than other demographics right now. Like 66. um, I have, uh, let me just, uh, because you know, when we, one thing about me, I'm going to come with the facts. National Center for Education uh, Statistics. Uh, 2009 through 2010, 68% of associate's degrees at that time, black women. Six, uh, 66% of bachelor's degrees, black women. 71% of master's degrees, black women. 65% of doctoral degrees, black women. I went to UCF at 2009, so I'm part of the statistic. That's so cool. Right? So what do you do when hiding things in books no longer... Uh, is effective, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you take away the books. You say you can't read them. And that's what's happening with our African-American studies in the state of Florida. And, um, you know, uh, one thing that Ronnie can't do is take away the books that are in our hearts, right? Like women, we are the, um, we're the carriers of culture, right? Um, we're the ones who are the storytellers. We're the orators for the next generations. We sit and we talk and and we do that because it's a dissemination of our history and our our culture, right? Um, and you you can you can't take that away. There's prehistoric times. It's called prehistory because there was no written system, mm-hmm. but information still got around. Mm-hmm. So you can take away to take away a bug which is actually really a scary thought because think about the other times in history where books were banned and yeah. you couldn't read certain things and it's actually really scary. But at the end of the day, this is this what we're doing right here, three women of different races, different cultures, different backgrounds, unifying and sharing the stories. You know, like you said things I didn't know. You said things uh, that I didn't know. I said things that y'all didn't know. And this is how we fight and then we organize and we keep on putting it on podcasts and putting it on YouTube and and we keep on moving and you can't yeah. stop the story. Absolutely. So tokenism, sorry, tokenism, actually, do we have just tokenism? I think we should address it. Okay. Yeah. So tokenism, I'll try to keep it short. Um, that's, no, nah, that's a lie. So tokenism, <laughs> um, we can have different episode segments. So it'll be yeah, we an might hour have on to. tokenism. <laughs> so like tokenism, you know, it's just really, uh, we have to be really careful about it, right? Because it's not only the Black, uh, Black History Month that can, um, you know, uh, this topic applies to, but look what happened when Juneteenth um, mm. came oh, around, Lord. right? So I was in Houston, Texas. I was living there from 2015. And as a Caribbean American, it was the African-Americans of Texas that really taught me like what it is to be like a black cowboy and like what it really means to, you know what I'm saying? Like, and have it on your hip. Right. Um, and that's where, like, of course I knew of Juneteenth, but nobody celebrates Juneteenth like Houston, Texas shout out. Right. And so to be able to know that, especially in Texas, cause that's where Juneteenth, it, it, it's so it's it's centered in Texas mm-hmm. and um, to know that I was able to experience that before it became commercialized and before you went in Walmart on Juneteenth and yeah. it got cups 
and uh, somebody has red velvet ice cream on Juneteenth, right? It's so important. Ew, and, I never saw that Oh my gosh, cringe, right? <laughs> and then it's this Black History Month is so important because say his name, Tyree Nichols, right? You have so many organizations and uh, companies and people who are going to post him and um, write this long caption about him, hashtag, hashtag, hashtag. But that's it. And then it's gone. But then I feel like these same people that are posting about him are the same people that contributed to the system that resulted in his murder. Speak on it. And, you know, no shade to anyone because there's a lot of people that just don't understand. No. They just don't know. Get it. Yeah. And, and, and it's not I don't want to discourage anyone from being an ally, mm -hmm. but you need to take that responsibility mm -hmm. of doing your research carefully, you know, choosing your words, choosing your mm. moments, because to, to be a true ally, it's not a matter of posting a picture and just standing in that type of, no, go yeah. out and take action. And ask a question, mm -hmm. sit down and have a conversation, right? Yeah. With somebody who's across the demographic aisle as you, like actually sit and listen to them. Don't ask them a question and then like have this pre like determined answer that you would like, sit and listen, you know? So, um, it, it's just, um, it's unfortunate because, I mean, it is what it is, right? But it's um, something that can actively be um, worked towards a, a true unifying, right? I read this thing. Um, I don't have the fact for this one, so don't come for me. But um, <laughs> I read a study. It was years and years ago before I understood the importance of collecting my resource my you know resources but anyways it said something to the fact that if every racist uh discriminatory system was eliminated mm -hmm. that day it would still take 400 years mm -hmm. for the ideologies and the practices and the ph philosophies to I fully that. come out of our yeah. system no for sure i think that's wild mm -hmm. i think it's absolutely wild so anyways you know it's just important for um you know people, organizations, companies to not only put your money where your mouth is, but make sure that like you're not making these opportunities op-eds, right? And mm -hmm. you're not making these opportunities post because your black employees, your black friends, your black community members are like walking out of their house like after having seen videos on their scroll, right? Yeah. And then here's a post like, oh, hmm. But then and it makes you roll your you like roll your eyes <laughs> like it's just like, OK, we're it, doing this today. Yeah, it's alienating. Mm, it definitely. really is. So make sure I mean, just make sure that you're walking the rock and talking the talk. And um, I think it can be done. It has to be in done yeah. intentionally. And we have to take away like, you know, the emotion and the guilt and the shame behind it and just have those raw conversations no matter how uncomfortable they are. So. Yeah. And I feel like there's a lot of times where a lot of people will say that they think a certain way just to look like they're a good person mm. and not actually do things <laughs> that show that they're a good person or a good company mm -hmm. stuff like that but this we could definitely get in like i said okay. this could Let's be a whole. good example like yeah. i recently just saw you people with jonah hill on netflix and the gorgeous lauren london oh, come my gosh. on she's gorgeous <laughs> but if you start paying attention to the um character oh, the mom, the mom. Ju julia dreyfus yeah. yes mm. oh <laughs> seinfeld queen yes yes if you watch how she interacts in that movie yeah. it'll give you a good understanding how some things you know some questions just like you're not mm -hmm. hitting it where you like it's not giving what it's supposed to give and mm -hmm. 
that is where you need to take a step back and ask yourself first. Don't come out here looking ignorant or crazy, please. Like, just take a second. Really, Google exists. We can Google something. Google exists. Google can also be a very scary place, too, because True. depending on what. But also, like, um, uh, well, more so, like, don't, you know, just just come with just humility and be okay with saying that you don't know mm-hmm. and go into the situation like, hey, I'm here to learn and not impose my understanding, my perspective to what your perspective is. And then you chew the meat and spit out the bones, right? Eventually you become like somebody's on the fence. And, and, and sometimes these evolutions take time. These evolutions mm-hmm. of thought and philosophy take time. So sometimes you also have to realize you can't change somebody. All you can do is drop your Glennis seed, drop your Katie seed, drop your Nay seed, and let it go. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, if it falls on good soil, it does. And then if not, all right, on yeah. to the next. And one thing that I think we're, like, kind of talking about it in, in a way and just, like, to transfer over to this, we're all in the climate movement, right? Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of tokenism or fake justice in the climate movement as well and that's really because the climate movement and the environmental movement has been historically white facing and actually if it wasn't for racial injustice systems such as red lines such as the creation of sacrifice zones the climate crisis would actually cease to exist because people chose to create oil fill fields coal mines in areas where black and brown underserved communities are. So if it wasn't for sacrifice zones, that wouldn't exist. And climate is inherently racist. And I really thought about that and even thought more about how sea level rise is inherently racist through a conversation that Neshma was having with a program she runs called Empowering Resilient Women. What's that? Neshma was saying her climate story and I actually never was able to hear her climate story. So. I really want you all to have a moment to just hear about the relationship between climate change and Neshma. Let's go back, back in the time, right? <laughs> so um, when I was in the womb. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was just a weed, yeah, right. Um, so the, my church, right? Uh, there's this thing called Vacation Bible School, and so there's some listeners who'll be like, "Yeah, I did VBS." Well, you. You know what I'm talking about, right? So anyways, that comes every summer um, so parents can have a continued break from their children after school ends. And um, <laughs> my church, or after the week of VBS, we used to go to what was then John U. Lloyd Park, right? Dania Beach, right next to Hollywood. Um, and it was just it was just always a grand old time. It was just like a barbecues and beach and swim and just you come home and you're just like all brown and sandy and it was just amazing right um and I remember coming back home from Texas when I moved back to Florida from Texas and I said you know what let me head over and just in my what 20-30 years of let's say 20 because it was like 7 10 whatever anyways um the available shoreline had drastically decreased. There's like this increase of um, various blooms of seaweed because the water's warming, the sun is hotter. Um, 
and it's just not an enjoyable place to be anymore unfortunately because of what is happening climatically environmentally right so um, I've always been a beach girl and for me that's a privilege because when I continue to go through the story of it John Uvoy Beach is actually historically Black Beach, right? That's our that's our Broward, yeah, right. That's mm-hmm. our Broward, Virginia Key, right? And um, man, so I did, I wasn't aware of that when I was younger, but you know, growing, you know, um, and and that came to my knowledge, and so I'm primarily sad because the beach that I loved and went every single year is no longer my beach. It's like this. There's there's a road, you know the and it's just sad to see. Anyway, so I continue, um, you know, just learning. Um, this is not when I come back from Texas, but like even in high school, I was super involved in my community. Um, I was always in Sistrunk at the Mizell Community Center <laughs> doing my little Delta Gems program and stuff like that. So, you know, just um, HIV, World AIDS Day. Um, I was always involved, right? And it's called Cisdrunk, but when you, it's called the Mizell Community Center because Dr. Von D. Mizell, one of the first black physicians of Broward County, Fort Lauderdale, he was really like the activist, right, of Broward County. Um, you see um, him in conjunction with Eula Johnson and several other activists um, in the area, um, really moved and pushed towards civil rights for black people in Broward County. Mm-hmm. And one of those movements that they led were it's called the Wadens. So when you think about the Wadens, think about the sit-ins mm-hmm. that were happening at restaurants. And so mm-hmm. uh, the beaches in, uh, in Florida, Gulf Coast, right? Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, all the way down, were segregated, mm-hmm. right? Obviously. But black people could not cross A1A unless they had a work card. You couldn't go to the beach unless you were working, right? And Von D. Mizell, Dr. Von D. Mizell, Eula Johnson, a million and trillion other people moved towards desegregating the beaches here in Florida, right? Um, and the lawyer who actually filed the civil rights lawsuit was John U. Lloyd. Remember, the beach was called John U. Lloyd. John U. Lloyd, we love him, right? Because he's he's part of the civil rights movement here uh, in Broward County, but he was a white lawyer that submitted the lawsuit, and it, and the beach was named after him and not the people who were actually in the throes mm-hmm. of it, right? So I bring up that history to say this, right? So I'm going to this beach, historically black, named after a white man. My, uh, you know, my beach is being destroyed, right? Um, and I realized that there was at a t- there was a time, 1950s, that black people couldn't access the beach. And now maybe, what, that's 70 years ago, if I'm doing my math. That sounds right. That sounds right. It sounds right. It sounds right. It feels right. Okay. (laughs) Um, 70 years ago, we cannot access the beach. And if we look at the projections for what the climate crisis is going to do here, uh, do to us here in South Florida, in 70 years, we may not have any beach. So it's like, I think it's uh, probably like one of the best examples of the rock in the hard place that black and brown people 
frontline communities, rural right communities, immigrant communities face when they're here in America. It's being stuck between a rock in a hard place. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is actually the first year, unfortunately, that we can't go to have our little VBS with the new little munchkins. Um, we just, the beach is too eroded. We can't have it. So this is the first year, and I'm not going to cry about it, but I'm going to cry when I go home. <laughs> um, so um, it just it, it makes me sad because um, this is not only happening here, Um, It's happening other places when we talk about the climate crisis and environmental crises. um, And but we have to remember, just as you were seeing, Katie, is that it's layered. Right. It's inherently racist. It's inherently like bias. It's inherently discriminatory. And um, that's why we move and that's why we organize and that's why we shout. And and what's so heartbreaking, too, and what I really really took away when I heard your story again and again is black people just got their beaches back and now they're being taken away. Mm -hmm. And there is actually another beach here in Miami that is being taken away from black people. Absolutely. You know, your story puts a lot of things into perspective and I hope that everyone listening can kind of make the connection here when we talk about what's happening in Miami, Mm -hmm. Virginia Key. You know, I I know that you've done, you're, you're passionate about what's going on down there as well. Can you kind of just give a little insight of maybe the work that you've done behind all of that, maybe break it down for the listeners. Absolutely. So, um, man, historically black Virginia Key Beach. Um, before I even start, I just want to give a flower to Katie. <laughs> and I'm going to keep on doing this no matter what, but a flower to Katie because Katie is actually somebody who has inspired me to get back into political advocacy. I was disillusioned for a long time and just being at the Clio Institute and having the pleasure to work with her. And she has that effect right? on a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Man, she can light a fire, right? <laughs> and she lit a fire that was gone for a long time. And, um, uh, you know, so I, I really thank you for that. Because um, my organizing is like teaching and like, you know, hey, here's this education, here's what you can do about it, you know, and I'll do certain things, but, you know, there are certain things, and I'm just like, you know what, I don't, I didn't see the point, mm-hmm. and sometimes you can get, you know, still feel disillusioned, you, you go public comment, you go write this letter, you go and whatever, and you see it's still yeah. approved or passed or, you know, whatever, but it, you still got to do it. So anyways, hist- uh, historical, uh, historically black Virginia Key Beach um, landmark here down in Miami, um, 1945. Please don't quote me. But 1945, um, this is designated as a landmark here in Miami. Um, the causeway is then built to connect. And um, fast forward, um, we have a housing affordability crisis. Miami is the second most income and equal city in the United States after New York City. Um, When you come down here, don't go to South Beach. Go west of A1A. Go a little east of 95. Go to Liberty City. Go to Opelika. Go to Cistrunk. Go to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Little Liberia. See what Miami is really like. And the proposal and they bring up the housing crisis because our most vulnerable community our uh houseless community right 
the proposal by the city of Miami's commission is to create a, a homeless encampment on historically black Virginia Key Beach, a population that is over 60% black. Um, the idea is to put our most vulnerable community members isolated on an island. Great. Um, and how are you supposed to treat <laughs> a home? What are you supposed to do when you're planning that, right? Aren't you supposed to have it uh, next to an area with bus stops, access to jobs and everything? Oh, no, no, no. Drop them off in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So, works, so and what right? are you going to do during a hurricane? Yeah. Complete isolation. Intentional isolation. Um, of course, I'm sure that the response was, oh, we have all of that planned out. Great. Um, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been strategic. Um, it's very strategic and it's very Miami, right? So, so Miami. Um, so Miami. <laughs> because for what, a couple of decades, um, there's supposed to be a museum that is built out that millions of dollars are supposed to be funded in to build a museum. On Virginia Key. On Virginia Key Beach. But we don't have enough money for that. But you know how quickly the commission moved to remove the predominantly black uh, trustee board from Virginia Key uh, B's trust board of trustees so quickly. Um, you know, the thing about the ERW cohort this year um, is that I've been empowered just as much as they have been empowered through the program. Um, me as a program manager, Baritha Howard as a coordinator. Shout and out course, to Baritha. Literally shout out to Baritha <laughs> because there's no ERW without Baritha. And then of course, um, through Cleo having this um, inception of ERW, um, when they saw what was happening, the disparities of distribution and care and recovery after Hurricane um, Irma. And so with the ERW women, it's, it's funny because the, the tagline that I came up with was like uh, building community leaders through education, preparation and action. Yeah. IG, right? IG ready. Um, but then I saw all the people who were applying and registering. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like she's a stalwart. Like, oh, my gosh, she's already doing this. She's an ex executive director of this, this, that, and that. And I'm supposed to lead this <laughs> program. So they've actually empowered me more than I, I They'll say something different, but I feel that as every single day that I think about ERW, I become more empowered. Um, women, we are born leaders. Think I'm an only child, but think about the women who are uh, have siblings, automatic caregivers. Think about the you know like so much responsibility falls on women's uh, shoulders before they're even women. So we are already leaders. Mm -hmm. um, we are the centers of our communities. And so it is my responsibility to sit back and listen, right? And it's yeah. my, to take that as an evaluation and analysis so I can try to just try to <laughs> make things, uh, make a, a program that speaks to them and uh, grows them in the ways that they wanna grow. Um, speaking of growing the urban gardening, Ashley Varela, our gardening expert, holistic, uh, um, sorry, horticultural therapist has gotten our hands back in the dirt 
us growing our seedlings and, uh, um, you know, our saplings and stuff. And just that connection with Mother Earth, I think that's most, the most beautiful thing to, for somebody to be able to go outside, pick something that they grew and brew a tea with it, put it on their mm-hmm. um, plate, cook it or put it in a vase and look at it because it's pretty. Right. That's beautiful. And mm-hmm. that's another yes, yeah, small way to fight the climate crisis because we will not take the responsibility of huge corporations, capitalistic corporations that are creating these systems to continue to thrive. And there's no capitalism without colonialism, but we don't have time. <laughs> so um, even though individual, you know, movements are not going to stop the climate crisis it's that awareness and that's exposure and when you have 20 million 30 million individuals who decide to come together and that's when those systems can no longer stand so i don't know if i answered your question (laughs) you did and you touched up on you know creating those equitable solutions Mm -hmm. those, those opportunities are just because besides giving them those tools to like okay advocate you're right what do you do when you don't have transportation? What and what do you do when you don't have childcare? What do you do when all these different obstacles come up? You mm-hmm. can't get out of work to go give public comment. And I think more now than ever, leaders like yourself that come into play, listen to what the people actually need and provide them that opportunity to jump over, you know, get over that hurdle, right? I think that's what more organizations, more companies need to be doing. And mm. I know you're doing it. You know, how, how many women are in the ERW program? Registered 25 just depends. 19 to 22 is our attendance, which <laughs> I think is a good conversion rate. Anyways. <laughs> 19 to 22 strong women that are already so heavily involved in their mm-hmm. communities. And you're providing that platform so that they can come to you and tell you what their real struggles mm. are. Not what other people are saying the problem is. No, what they live on their day-to-day life and and, you know, I see that a lot. You know, you guys bring out the food that you, you work with, the notebooks, the laptops, all that stuff, because how are we supposed to make change if we don't understand or relate to the problems mm-hmm. that people are facing in the first place? Mm-hmm. You know, and we provide child care. Uh, the women get stipends, $20 an hour stipends uh, for each workshop. Um, they get weekly allowances to um to be able to afford transportation or any um, costs that come up for particip- as they participate in the program. Um, and then it's not just me and Baritha. Like, I work with you. I work with Kata. We put those documents together. We Like, it's a cross-departmental thing, right? And um, this is the first time it's six months long, so I can't wait for it to um, be recognized replicated and duplicated in other cities and other areas so go to the cleoinstitute.org click on the erw landing page and partner and fund and support all right guys so check out erw on our cleo website and follow us on house on fire podcast to keep up with our episodes